everybody, and welcome to the Frontside Podcast, episode 113. My name is Charles Lowell. I'm a developer here at the Frontside. And uh, with me today are Taras Mankowski and David Keithley. Hello. Hey, guys. Hello, hello. And uh, we're going to be talking with a serial guest on our serial podcast, uh, Mr. Philip Poots, who is the VP of Engineering at Club Collect. Uh, welcome, Philip. Hey, guys. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm actually excited to have you on. Um, we've had you on a couple times before. We've been trying to get you on the podcast, I think, for about a year to talk about, I think, what is kind of a unique story in programming these days. The prevailing narrative is that folks start off with some language that's dynamically typed and object-oriented, and then... At some point, they discover functional programming, and then at some point, they discover static programming, and you know they march off into a promised land of nirvana and no bugs ever, ever happening again. And it seems like it's pretty much a straight line from that point to the next point and, and passing through those way stations. And so when I talked to you, I guess, gosh, I think you were the first person that really introduced me to Elm uh, back at Wicked Good Ember in 2016. And it seemed like you were, you know, kind of following that arc. But actually, that was a bit deceptive because then the next time I talked to you, you were saying, no, man, I'm really into like Ruby and just kind of really like diving in and trying to get into Ruby again. And I was kind of like record scratch. You're kind of jumping around the points. You're not following the the preordained story arc. What is going on here? Uh, and so I just kind of wanted to have a conversation about that and and find out what the deal was and, and, and what's kind of guided your journey. There was one event and that was ElmConf Europe, which was a fantastic conference, probably one of the best conferences I've been to just because, you know, I guess with the nature of early language, small conference environment. There's just a lot of things happening. There's a lot of people you get access to, you know, Evan was there, Richard Feldman was there, you know, like the leading lights of the Elm community were there and it was fantastic. But, but I guess one thing all people had always said to me is the hallway track is the best track of the conference. And it's not something I'd really appreciated before. And during the breaks, I ended up talking to a guy called Michelle Martins. He is the founder of a Redis hosting company. And this, I guess this was just a revelation to me. Like he was interested in Elm. He was friends with the guys that had organized the conference and we got talking and, and he was like, you know, I do this in Ruby. I do this in Ruby. I did this in Ruby. And I was like, what? <laughs> he was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and like, he's a really, really humble guy. But as soon as I got home, I checked him out. So his GitHub is uh, sovereign. And it turns out like he's written, I don't know how many gems in Ruby, all with like really well-chosen names, very short, very clear, very detailed. And like the best thing about his libraries is you can print them out on paper. And what I mean by that is they were tiny, like they were so small. And I guess I'd just never seen that before. <laughs> like, it, I mean, I, I kind of, I got into Ruby and Rails. That was my first exposure to programming. That was my first exposure to everything. And, and like with Rails, like often when you hit like problems, you'd start to dive a bit deeper and ultimately you dive so deep that, that you sunk essentially and you just accepted, okay, I'm not going to bend the framework that way this time. Let's figure out how everyone else, you know, goes with the framework and do that. And then with Ember, when I moved into front end, that was a similar thing. Like there were so many layers of complexity that I never felt like I had a real handle on it. And 
And I kind of just thought this was the way things were. Um, I thought it's always going to be complex. That's just the nature of the problem. That that's that's just the problem they're trying to solve is a complex problem, and therefore the, the, that complexity is 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 necessary. But but it was Elm that taught me, I think, that that choosing the right primitives and thinking very carefully about the problem can actually give you something that's quite simple but incredibly powerful. And not only something quite simple, but something so simple that it can fit inside your head, like this concept of a program fitting inside your head. And reels, you know, I don't know how many heads I'd need to fit reels in, or, or, or Ember for that matter. And, I, and believe me, I tried. But, but with Elm, there was that simplicity. So when I came across this Ruby, so a language I was very familiar with, but this Ruby that I'd, I'd, uh, I'd never seen before. So, so let's take an, uh, you know, a clear example was a templating library. Um, he calls it Mote, M-O-T-E. Um, it's including comments. It's under 100 lines of code. And it does everything you would need to. Sure, there are one or two edge cases that it doesn't cover. But it's like, you know, let's just use the trade-off. It almost feels like out DHHing DHH because he was always a big believer in, you know, you ain't going to need it. Let's go for the 80% win with 20% effort. And, and this was like that taken to the extreme. So, I mean... I'm just curious to just kind of put a fine point on it is it sounds like there might be more in common that like a, a deeper camaraderie between, you know, this style of Ruby and, you know, the style encouraged by Elm, even though that on the surface, one is a dynamically typed object oriented language and the other is a statically typed functional language. And yet there's a deeper philosophical alignment that's not like seems like it's invisible to 99% of the discussion that happens around these languages. Yeah, I think so. I think the categories we, and this is something Richard Feldman talks, he's a member of the Elm community, does a lot of talks, and has a course also in front-end masters, which I highly recommend. But, but he often talks about the frame of the conversation is wrong. Because you have good statically typed languages and you have bad statically typed languages. You have good dynamic languages and you have bad dynamic languages for all interpretations of good and bad, right? I don't want to start any wars here. <laughs> but, but, <laughs> right, right. You know, and, and I think one of the things that, that Elm and Ruby have in common is the creator. So Matt's designed Ruby because he wanted programming to be joy. You know, and Evan created Elm because he wanted programming to be a delight. And I think if you experience both of those, like developing in both of those languages, you, you gain a certain appreciation for what that means. You know, it's, it is almost undefinable, indistinguishable, although you can see the effects of it everywhere. You know, in Ruby, everything is an object, including nil. In Elm, like it's almost... He's taken everything away. Evan's taken everything away that could potentially cause you to stumble. I mean, there's a lot to learn with Elm in terms of getting your head around functional mindset and also working with types. But as far as that goes, I mean, people often call it like the Haskell light, which I think does a disservice to Elm because it's got different goals. Yeah, you can tell that just in, you know, my explorations with Elm, the personality of Elm is 100% different than the personality of Haskell, if if that is even a programming term that you can apply. But you know, for example, the compiler has an identity. Uh, it, it it always talks to you in the first person. I saw that you did this. Perhaps you meant this. You should look here. 
or I couldn't understand what you were trying to tell me. Like that, like literally that's how the Elm compiler talks to you, right? It actually talks to you like a person. And so there's, it's very, sorry, go ahead. No, no. And I think the corollary to that is, is the principle of least surprise in Ruby. You know, is there going to be a method that does this? You type it out and you're like, oh yes, it is. Which is why, you know, things like inject and reduce are both methods in, in enumerable. You know, he didn't choose one over the other. He was just like, let's make it easy for the person who's programming to use what, what they know best. And, and I think as well, I think people don't quite, I mean, maybe people don't think about this as, 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 as deeply, but like the level of thought that Evan has put into designing Elm is crazy. You know, like he's thought this through. I, I, I'm not sure if I said this the last time, but I went to a workshop in the early days in London, which was my kind of first real exposure to, to Elm and, and Evan was giving the workshop and, you know, someone asked him, well, why didn't you do this? And he was like, well, that might be okay for now, but I'm not sure that that would make so much sense in 10 years. And I was kind of like, what? <laughs> cause, cause like JavaScript and that ecosystem is something which is changing like practically hourly. And this, this is a guy that's thinking 10 years into the future. You might have answered it already, but I'm curious uh, what you think is the difference. Maybe it just comes down to that long-term thinking, but we see this in, in JavaScript world a lot, which is this um, uh, this kind of in, almost indifference to APIs. Like it, it almost doesn't really matter what the API is. And for whatever reason, like it, there doesn't seem to be a, um, a big correlation between the API that's exposed with the popularity of the tool um, I think there are some some patterns, like something that's really simple, like so, like uh, jQuery and React have become popular because of their because of this kind of simplicity of their APIs. But like, what's the flip side to that? What other ways can APIs be created that we see in JavaScript world? You know, because it, it, we're talking about these these beautiful APIs, and I can relate to some of that in the work that Charles has been doing, and I and I've been doing microstates. But I'm, I, I wonder, like, what 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 would be just a brief alternative to that API, to the kind of beautiful API. Yeah, I mean, I guess, so, I mean, I don't know if anyone's familiar with, with the series of essays, Worse is Better, like East Coast versus West Coast. Yeah, Richard Richard Gabriel. I think the, the, the problem is, I guess, and, and maybe this is just my understanding of or my paraphrase of it, I'm not too familiar with it, but I think that good APIs take time, people don't have time. <laughs> right and and if someone so if someone launches a v1 at first and it kind of does the job people will use that over nothing and then whenever they're happy with that they'll continue to use it and develop it and ultimately it it it, it achieves market share and then that's just the thing everyone uses and the other guy's kind of left behind and he's you know hey this is so much better and, and I guess, you know, this is a question, Tom. So I went, I think it was after Wicked Good Ember. I, I happened to be on the same train as Tom Dale on the way back to, to New York. And we started talking about this. And, you know, I think that's his big question. I think it's also a question that, that still has to be answered, which is, you know, will Elm ever be mainstream? You know, will it be the most popular thing? And aside from the question of whether it has to be or not. So for me, like good APIs, good design comes from understanding the problem fully. And you can't understand the problem fully without time. Exactly. And, and often what happens, at least this is what happens in my experience with, with the production software that I've written, is that 
you don't actually understand the problem until you've developed a solution for it. And then when you've developed a solution for it, often the pressures or the commercial pressures or in open source's case, the pressures of backwards compatibility mean that you can never refactor your way to what you think the best solution is. And often you start from scratch. And the reality is people are far too far away with the stuff you wrote in the past to bother about the thing you're writing now. Those are always kind of at odds. And, and, and I think, you know, there are a lot of people that are annoyed with Elm because it's like the updates are too slow. It relies on Evan and we want it, you know, we want to have a pull request accepted. We want, you know, all of the things that they don't necessarily recognize, like the absence of which make Elm Elm, if you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, like the, the, the very fact that Evan does set such a high standard and does want everything to go through his personal filter is because otherwise you wouldn't gain the benefits that Elm gives you. And and that tension, you know, is very real in terms of I want to ship my software now. Mm-hmm. And, and and so it, it becomes easier then, I think, to, to go to a language like JavaScript, which has all of the escape hatches that you need to be able to to chop and change, to edit, to do to do what you need to do to get the job done. And and, mm-hmm. and, and and let's be quite honest, I think also with Elm that that that's the challenge. I think for, for someone who's not at an expert level like me is, is once you hit a roadblock, it's like, well, where do I go from here? Like, I know if I was using JavaScript, I could just like hack it. Right. And then right. clients are happy and everything's fine. And you know, there's a bit of like s- stuff in your code that you would rather wasn't. But at the end of the day, you know, you go home and, and the job's done. Have you had to teach Elm to other people? Or ex- try to explain concept like you know you, you you and I did some work where where you know um, like I've seen you pair with someone and like guide them through the work that they that they needed to get done like have you had a chance to do something like that with uh, Elm and see how that how that actually happens like what how the the developer's mind develops as they're working through like using the tool. Um, unfortunately, not. I would I would actually love to go through that experience and and. Secretly, I hope none of my developers are listening to this podcast, but secretly, you know, I want to push them in the direction of Elm um, on, on, on the front end. But no, but, but I think I, I, I can at least speak from, from my own perspective. I find it very challenging at first because there's a couple, well, for me, being, you know, being a Ruby developer and also with a lit, like, I would never say that I understood JavaScript as much as I would have liked. So coming from dynamic language no functional experience to functional language with types you know it's almost like learning a couple of different things at the same time and that was challenging like i think if i were to 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 take someone through it i would i would maybe like start with the functional aspects and then move on to the typed aspects or vice versa like try and clearly break down you know and it's difficult because those two are so intertwined at some level but i did so gary bernhardt um of destroy all software screencasts I'd watched quite a bit of his stuff and, and I asked him, I'd, I'd sent him an email to ask him some questions about one of the episodes that he did. And he told me that he'd done um, the programming languages course on, on uh, I think it's on Coursera from Daniel Grossman. So it took you through ML, which is kind of the father of all MLs like Haskell and, and also Elm. Um, and I found that really helpful because that broke it down. Um, on a very basic level, and his goal wasn't to teach you ML, it was to teach you functional programming. So yeah, it would be a very interesting exercise, I think. 
I mean, most people, I think the benefit that Elm gives you is you get to experience that delight very quickly with, oh, it's broken. Here's a nice message. I fix the message. It compiles. Wow, it works. And then there's a bit of a kind of, there's a very big jump whenever you start talking about effects. So whenever you want to, to, to actually do something like HTTP calls or, or dealing with the time or I guess the impure stuff you would call it in the Haskell land. Um, and that was also kind of a bit weird. It's also, there's been some churn around that, right? They've been. That's right. So, so when I started learning, they had signals. Then they kind of pushed that all behind the scenes and made it a lot more straightforward. And then like, I just mastered it and I was like, yes, I know it. And then it was like, oh, I <laughs> don't need to know it anymore. <laughs> but it was in, like, so, so this is the interesting thing for me because now, so at work, we, we have most of our work now is in Elixir and Phoenix. You know, I'm kind of picking a little bit up as I, as I, as I work with them. And, and I think Elm's like architecture behind the scenes is, is kind of based, I believe is based on airlines process model. So the idea of a mailbox and sending messages and like dealing with the mutable state. Mm -hmm. Which is kind of ironically is very object oriented in a way. Right. I mean, it is it is it, it, it's functional, but also the concept of mailboxes and sending messages and essentially having, you know, if you substitute object for process, you know, you have these thousands and thousands of processes that are sending messages back and forth uh, to each other. Yeah, that's right. It's like it's like on a grand scale, on a distributed mm -hmm. scale. Although I, I wouldn't say that I'm that far with airline elixir to to appreciate the, the reality of that yet. But that's what they say, absolutely. So now Phoenix and Elixir is a dynamically typed functional language. Does it share the simplicity? I mean, one of the criticisms you had of Rails was that you couldn't fit it into your head or it was very difficult. Is there anything different about Elixir uh, that kind of makes it a spirit cousin of Elm and the, the simple Ruby? I think so, yes, absolutely. So, so I don't think it gets to the same level, but I think it's in the right direction. And, and specifically on the framework front, like it was designed specifically, I mean, in a sense, it's like the, the, the anti-type to Rails because it was born out of people's frustrations with Rails. Like Jose Valim was pretty much one of Rails top core committers. He'd, you know, basically every Rails application I wrote at one period had 80% of the code written by Jose Valim. If you included all the gems, the ink like device and uh, resourceful and all the rest of it. And so Elixir in many ways was born out of the, the kind of limitations of, of Ruby uh, with Rails. And Phoenix was also born out of frustrations with the complexity of Rails. And um, so while it's not as simple as, as say, Michelle Martin's uh, Syro, which is like his web framework, uh, which is a successor to Cuba, if people have heard of that, it is a step in the right direction. I certainly feel like I don't understand it, but I certainly feel like I could. Um, so, you know, they have Plug, which is kind of analogous, but not identical to Rack. But then the whole thing is built, you know, out of, out of plugs. I remember Yehuda Katz gave a presentation like the next five years um, essentially about Rails 3. So this is, this is going way back. <laughs> and, and, and Phoenix is in some ways like the manifestation of his desire to have like the Russian doll pattern 
where you could nest applications inside applications and you could kind of have them side by side and put them inside each other and things like that. So Phoenix has this concept called umbrella applications, mm-hmm. um, which does that. And and like Ecto is a really, really nice abstraction for, for working with the database. I see. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it feels like as opposed to like being functional or, you know, static versus dynamic, it's like, the question is, is how can you, how do you generate your complexity? How do you cope with complexity? Because I think you touched on it at the beginning of the conversation where you said, you know, you thought that, you know, my problems are complex. So the systems that I work with to solve those problems must necessarily also be complex. And I think one of the things that I've certainly realized kind of in the later stages of my career is that that first part is true. The problems that we encounter are extremely complex, but you're much better served if you actually achieve that complexity by composing radically simple systems and recombining them. And the recombinability of your system is going to determine how easy it's going to work with and how well it can cope with complexity. What really drives a good system is the quality of its primitives. Uh, absolutely. And so so af- after ElmConf, um, I actually invited Michel to come to my place um, in the Netherlands. He, so he, he lived in Paris, but I think he's, he grew up in Buenos Aires in Argentina. And to my amazement, he said, yes, okay. And we spent a couple of days together. And, and, and there he talked to me about uh, Christopher Alexander and the, the patterns book, where, where patterns um, design patterns actually grew out of. One of his biggest things was the code is the easiest part. Like you've got to spend 80% of your time thinking deeply about the problem. Like literally go outside, take long walks, I'm not sure if this is what Rich Hickey means with hammock driven development. I've never actually got around to watching the talk. I think I think it's exactly. Okay. I think it's exactly and, and, what and, it means. And and he said like once you get it, it, it like the code just comes. Um, and and I think Michelle's work you should really check it out. I'll put it. Well, I'll send you a link to put it in the show notes. But you know everything is built out of really small libraries that do one thing and do it really well. For example, he has a, a library to to like a Redis client, but the Redis client also has like something called Nest, which is a way to 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 generate like the keys for nested hashes. And because that's so well designed, the Redis client is literally just a layer on top. If you understand the primitive, then you can use the the, the library on top really well. You can embed Syro applications within Syro applications. Yeah, and 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 I guess. There, you also need the luxury of time. And I think, you know, this is where maybe my role as, as VP of engineering, which is kind of my first role of that kind, um, comes in here, which is when you're working under commercial pressure, like try to turn around to a business guy and say, yes, we'll solve this problem, but can we take three weeks to think about it? Right? Like it's, it's never, it's never going to happen. <laughs> no. Absolutely never going to happen. <laughs> Although like the small things that I try to do day to day now is, is like get away from the computer, write on paper, write out the problem as you understand it, like attack it from different angles, think about different viewpoints, etc. I think if you are able to quantify the cost of not thinking about it for three weeks, then, you know, the business person that you're going to talk to is going to let their ears are going to perk up. 
right? I think, but that's so hard to do. But I think that's, you know, that's something that, you know, I try and make like when we're saying, you know, are you, you know, what technologies are you going to choose? Well, it's what are the long-term ramifications in terms of dollars uh, or euros or whatever currency you happen to be in for making this decision? I wish we had more support in in um, in thinking about that. Like, but it's kind of like a one-off every time. Anyway, I'm getting a little bit off track. No, not at all. I, well, I mean, this is a subject I love to talk about because the other side, you know, what I see because we kind of had a few you know, a bit of turbulence because we thought, well, maybe we should get product people in, maybe we should get um, a product team going. And and what I find was, and this is maybe unique to, to the size of the company, but what I find was that actually made things a lot more difficult because you've got too many heads in many ways. And, and sometimes, like, it's better to give the developer all of the context so that he can think about it and come up with the best solution because ultimately he's the only one who can understand I mean, I wouldn't say he understands the dollars and cents, but he understands the the cost implications of doing it in inefficient ways, uh, which often happens when you're when you're working, um, you know, in larger teams. Well, one thing I find really interesting about this conversation is the definition of good is really complicated here. So I've observed Charles work on microstates, um, and I've worked with with him. Like I wrote a lot of the code, and we've gone through like five or six iterations. And at every point, it got better, but it is so difficult to define that. And then I think when you start to add to that conversations outside of that code context, and you start to introduce like business uh, into the mix, the definition of good becomes extremely complicated. I wonder what, like, what do you, what do you think about that? Like, how do we define it in a way? In, uh, and are there like, are there cultures or engineering cultures or like just societal cultures that, that, that have a better definition for good that is relevant to doing quality work like this? That's a deep question. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah, really, really deep question. And I think often for business, like purely commercially driven, money-oriented, good is the cheapest thing that gets the job done. And often that's very short-term, I think, as you alluded to, Charles, that people don't think about the cost of not doing the right thing, so to speak, in our eyes. And also there's the huge philosophical discussion between whether our definition of good as programmers and people who care about our craft is is even analogous to or or equal to good in a commercial mm-hmm. context. Yeah, because right, because ultimately, and this is if y'all have read Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance, you know, one of the things that Persig talks about is what is the definition of quality? Um, how do we define something that's good or something that's bad? And you know, one of the definitions that gets put forward is that quality is how well something is fit to purpose so unless you understand the purpose then you can't determine quality because the purpose defines a very rich texture a very rich surface and so quality is the is going to be the object that maps very evenly and cleanly over that surface Uh, and so you know, when it comes to what people want 
in a program, uh, you know, they're going to want very different things. So, you know, a developer might need stimulation for this is something that's very new. Uh, this is something that's going to keep my interest or it's going to, you know, it's going to be keeping my, <clears throat> you know, CPU max and I'm going to be learning a whole lot. Uh, and so, so a solution that actually solves for that purpose is going to be a high quality solution. Um, there's also this is going to be fast, right? We're going to be able to get to market very quickly. Uh, and so that it might be one of the purposes. And so a solution that is fast is going to be one of the, the purpose fits and so is going to be good. And so also, I think, you know, developers aren't just self-indulgent and looking for the next best thing and something that's going to keep their interest, although we do, we are all guilty of that. But at the same time, we're going to be the ones maintaining software, both in our current projects and collectively when we move to a new job and we're going to be responsible for someone else's code, then, you know, we're going to be paying the cost of those decisions. And so we both want to maximize the or minimize the pain for ourselves and minimize the pain for others who are going to be coming and working our code to make things long-term maintainable. Uh, and so that's one axis of purpose and therefore an axis of quality. So I think in order to measure good and bad, you really have to really have a good definition of what is the purpose. That surface is so rich, but the more you can map it and find out where the contours lie, the more you're going to be able to determine what's good and what's bad. Yeah, so it makes me think of like, you know, what is what is a, a, a good hammer, you know, like a, a, a sledgehammer is a really good hammer, but, but it's not the right hammer for every job. Right. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, so I think it's, uh, I, I think what, I think what, what, what you're saying is it's uh, understanding what is the, what it is that you're actually doing, and then matching your solution to what you're actually trying to accomplish. Yeah, absolutely. And and in my experience, we have a Ruby team building a Rails application. That's our monolith. And then we have a couple of Elixir teams with services that have been spun out of that. And like, this isn't proven. This is just kind of gut feel right now. And it is that Elixir is sometimes slower to develop the same feature or ship it. Um, but in the long term is more maintainable. And Rails, I believe, is still... I mean, I haven't actually got, you know, dived into to React and, and all of the amazing frameworks that it has in terms of getting things up and running quickly. But, but in terms of, like, the full-scale application, I, I still think 10, 11 years on that Rails is no equal in terms of proving a business case in the shortest time possible. Yeah, I feel very similarly too. But the question is, do, does your development team approach the problem as proving a business case? Or do they approach the problem as, I want to solve this set of features? Yes, yeah, so, so where I'm working at the moment, so I started out um, just as a software developer. So I guess we would qualify for 37 signals, or sorry, Basecamp's definition of a calm company. Of a what company? A calm company. A calm company. Calm. Uh, <laughs> sorry. Yeah. And um, so they just released a new book um, called The Calm Company. It doesn't have to be crazy at work. And I was given in my first couple of months a problem 
I mean, it was business oriented. It was like it had to be solved, but it had to be solved well from a technical perspective because we didn't want to have to return to it every time. It was it was standardizing the way that we exported data from the database to to Excel, and you know, and that, that I was amazed because it was the first, literally the first time that I'd been given the space to actually dive in on a technical level and um, to do that kind of stuff. But but I think. I think even per feature that 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 varies and and that's sometimes challenging you know when handing work on because you've got to say well this bit literally we're just trying to prove whether if we add this feature that people will use it versus this is a feature that's going to be used every day and therefore needs to be of good technical quality yeah those those are the trade-offs that I guess keep you in a job because if it was easy then you wouldn't need anyone to figure it out but yeah, it's it's always a challenge, and I, and I, and what I like is that our tools are actually getting better, and and I think with Elm, for example, it's kind of major selling point is maintainability, and yet you know with Elm, you know there haven't been that many companies with Elm over a period of years, um, that exist that can live to tell the tale, right? Mm-hmm. Um, whereas we certainly know with Rails applications, I mean, done well like Basecamp and GitHub. For sure, they can be super maintainable. But the fact that it took, you know, GitHub just moved um, to Rails 5, I believe. The fact that it took them years and years and they were running off a fork of Rails 2.3, um, I think shows the scale of, of, of the problem in, in, in that way. And, um, you know, Phoenix also went through a few issues kind of moving architectures from from the classic rails to to a more domain driven design model i think we're getting there slowly zigzagging towards a place where we better understand how to write software to solve business problems and and i guess you know i, I was really interested in microstates when when you shared it um, at wicked good ember because that to me was attacking the problem from the right perspective it's like given the fact that the ecosystem is always changing. How can we extract the business logic such that these changes don't affect like the logic of our application? Boy, man, we got a lot to show you. <laughs> it's, uh, <laughs> it's changed quite a bit uh, in the last two years, hopefully for the better. It's been reduced almost. It's quarter of its size while maintaining the same feature set and it's faster. It's lazier. It's better in every respect. It's just... Uh, the ideas have actually been fairly consistent. It's just the implementation has evolved. Yeah. It's been quite a journey. It parallels kind of the story that we're talking about here in the sense that it really has been a search for primitives and a search for simplification. And it's one of, you know, the things that we've been talking about, you know, having these Ruby gems that do one thing and do it very, very, very well. Or the way that Elixir being architected is, is you know, has some very, very good primitives uh, or Elm, you know, the same same kind of thing being spiritually aligned, even though on the surface it might share more in common with Haskell. There's actually a deep alignment with a thing like Ruby. That's a very surprising result. Um, and I think that's one of the things that appeals to me about the type of functional programming that is ironically, I guess, not present in Elm, where you have the concept of these type classes. But I actually think I love them for their simplicity. So, you know, for, you know, I've kind of become disenchanted with things like Lodash, even though they're nominally functional. The fact that they don't mean that that you don't have things like 
you know, monoids and functors and stuff as kind of first-class participants in the ecosystems means you have to have a bunch of throwaway functions. Uh, the API surface area is very large. Whereas, you know, if you do account for those things, these kind of ways of combining data, and that's how you achieve your complexity, uh, is not by a bunch of one-off methods that are just, like in Lodash, they're all provided for you, so you don't have to have to write them yourself. But that is one level of convenience. But but having, you know, access to like five primitives, I think that's the power of, you know, the kind of the deeper functional programming types. And, and Charles, do you think that that gives you the ability to think at a higher level about the problems that you're solving? Would you, would you make that link? Absolutely. Absolutely. So, so if we're not doing that, then we're actually doing ourselves a disservice? I would say so. Because we're actually creating complexity where it shouldn't exist? Yeah. I think, I think if you, you have a more powerful primitive, you know, you can think of things like async functions and generator functions actually are very, you know, they're both, there, there is a common thread between async functions, generator functions, promises, arrays, and that they're all functors, right? And for me, that's a very profound realization and that there might be a deeper spiritual link between, say, an async function and an array in the same way that there's a deep spiritual link between Ruby and Elm. That if you don't see that, then you are doing yourself a disservice um, and, and you're able to think at a higher level. And you're also you have a, a smaller tool set that where each tool is more powerful. Yeah. Have you have you finished the uh, you, you did a grit? I think it was a repository with a readme where you like boiled down, you know, what people would term what I would term <laughs> the scary functional language down to very simple JavaScript. Mm-hmm. Did you ever finish that? Uh, I, I mean, did you get to did you get to the monads? I did get to the monads. Yep. <laughs> okay, I'll need to check that out again. I find that really, really helpful. Yeah. Um, yeah. Because because I think one of one of Evan's big things with Elm is that he doesn't use those terms ever. Right. Mm-hmm. And he avoids them like the plague because he said, you know, he, I think he believes they come tinged with the negative experiences of people trying Haskell and essentially getting laughed at, right? Yes. I think he's, there's, there's something to that. Well, we're doing that in microstates as well, right? We, we almost don't, on, in the external, in the microstates documentation, even though microstates are written completely with, with these functional primitives, on the outside, there's almost no mention of it. It's just that when you actually go to use it, if you if you have an idea, sort of like there's one of the things that's really powerful about microstates is that this idea that you can return another microstate from a transition, and what that will do is it will do kind of like what a flat map would do, which is like replace that particular node with the thing that you returned it with. And so for a lot of people, they might not know that that's what like a flat map would do. But a microstate will do exactly what they will what what they wanted to do when they didn't didn't even realize that actually should just work like that. Mm-hmm. So there's so we we I think there's a lot of the work that we've done uh, recently is to uh, is to just package all the things and make it powerful into um, accessible concepts that are just very familiar, something that you don't need to learn. You just use it and it just works for you. Right. That's always, but it is it is something that I feel like there's unharvested value for every programmer out there in these type classes, you know, monads and monoids and functors and cofunctors and all that stuff, or covariant functors, contravariant functors, blah, blah, blah. 
that, that, that entire canon. Like, I wish there was some way to reconcile the negative connotations and baggage that that has, because I do feel like, you know, we feel kind of the same way. And I think that, that Evan's absolutely right. You do want to hide that or make it so that the technology is accessible without having to know those things. But in the same way, it's there, these, these concepts are so powerful, um, both in terms of just having to think less and having to write less code, but also as a, as a tool to say, hey, I've got this process. Is there any way that I can, could I, could it be a functor? You know, if I, if I can find a way that this thing is a functor, I can just save myself so much time and take so many shortcuts uh, with it. In order to be able to communicate that, or at least communicate about that, you need to have terms to call these things, right? Because you mm-hmm. can't always just right. refer to the code or the pattern. It's always good to have a name. So, so yeah, I'm with you. I, I see value in both, like making it approachable. Um, so the people who don't know the terms are not frightened away. But I also see value in using the terms that have always existed to refer to those things so that, you know, things are clear and we can communicate about them. Mm-hmm. Right. So it's, yeah, it's definitely, there's a trade-off there. I don't know where exactly the line line is. Um, but yeah, it would be, it would be nice to be able to, to have our cake and eat that one too. <laughs> we didn't get really to talk about uh, type versus dynamic. Um, in the context, in the greater context of this this whole conversation, we could explore that topic a little bit. Well, I can I can finish with I think the future is typed Erlang. Maybe that's Elm running on Beam. Mm-hmm. Whoa, what a take right there, folks! <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love it. But <laughs> so why? What makes you say that? Typed Erlang doesn't exist right now, right? Exactly. And Elm definitely doesn't run on Beam. So I don't know if I'm allowed to say this. So when I was at this uh, workshop with Evan, like he mentioned that, and I'm not sure whether he mentioned it just as a throwaway comment or or whether this is part of his 20-year plan. But I think the very fact that Elm is designed around like Erlang's, like, you know, the, the, the signal stuff was designed around the way Erlang does communication and processes and means I know at least he appreciates that model. And from my point of view, with my experience um, with Elixir and Erlang in, in production usage, at, at, I mean, it's not huge scale, but it's scale enough to need to start doing performance work on Rails um, just to see how effortless things are with Elixir and with Erlang. You know, I, I think like Elm on the back end would be amazing, but it would have to be a slightly different language, I think. Because the prob, you know, the the problems are different, hmm. um, and and I do, you know, like we began this by 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 saying that my story was a little different to the norm because I went back to the dynamic, uh, the dark side, <laughs> um, but I but I but I do, for example, in in Elixir, I do miss types hugely. I mean, they they kind of have a little bit of a hack with Erlang because they return a lot of tuples you know, with okay and then the object and, you know, it's almost like wrapping it up um, in, a, in a maybe, right? And and so there are little things and there's dialyzer to kind of type check. Um, and I think there are a few projects which do like add types to airline, etc. But I think something that works would need to be designed from the ground up to be typed and also run in the beam rather than be like a a, a squashed version of something else to fit somewhere else, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. No, it makes total sense. And and I think, so I, I recently read a book just to finish, which was um, 
F Sharp for Fun and Profit is his website. Scott Vlashkin, I think. Mm-hmm. And it's it's written with F Sharp, but but it's about des- like designing your program like in a typed functional language. And using the book, you could probably then just design your programs on paper and only commit to code at the end because you're thinking right down to the level of the types and and the process and the pipelines, which which mm-hmm. to me sounds amazing because I could work outside. Right. <laughs> <laughs> All righty. I will go ahead and wrap it up. I would just like to say thank you so much, Philip, for coming on and talking about uh, your story, as unorthodox as it might be. Thank you. Thank you, Taras. Thank you, David. Thank you for having us. That's it for episode 113. We are The Front Side. This is The Front Side podcast. We build applications that you can stake your future on. If that's something that you're interested in, please get in touch with us. If you have any ideas for future podcasts, things that you'd like to hear us discuss, or any feedback on the things that you did here, please just let us know. And once again, thank you, Mandy, for putting together this wonderful podcast, and uh, we will see you all next time. Thank you.